computing an accurate cost analysis or cost-benefit analysis is crucial to any business. So young entrepreneurs, that's something that you're going to have to to learn and to work through because a wise business will do a cost-benefit analysis before starting any project. They're going to ask, what is the cost to doing this and what is the benefit that we will gain from it? We don't have to look far in history, in our culture, to look at Bud Light as a recent example of a company that failed to accurately consider both the cost and the benefit of their campaign project. So far, their benefit has been estimated at negative $15.7 billion. They didn't make any money off of me before, and they don't make any money off of me after. But we, I think, all understand, boy, that was a fail in recognizing the cost and the benefit of that campaign. But personally, with just about anything we do in life, we, we whether we think about it like that or not, we use a cost uh, reward or benefit basis to evaluate whether we should do something or whether we shouldn't do something. What is this going to cost me? What benefit am I going to get from it? And we probably do this more than we even realize. We go to the grocery store. Inflation is high. We pick up this bag of chips and we pick up that bag of chips and we look at the ounces and then we look at the price tag and then we make a cost-benefit analysis. Am I going to purchase this one or this one based on how much that, that I get out of it? I do that. I don't know if you guys do that. And actually, it kind of bothers me. I, sorry, this is like a little pet peeve tangent. Uh, with the price tags on some of them, say price per ounce, and then the other ones will say like price per unit or something. It's like, how do I suppose, I got to pull a calculator out now. Anyway, sorry. That's just a trivial small example of ways that we do cost-benefit analysis in everyday life. We're here celebrating Memorial Day this weekend. It's a little bit more important than a bag of chips. It's a great time to to visit a national cemetery. There's one about 30 miles north of here in Elmira to remember the lives that have been given for our freedoms. But those men and women who join our military, the branches of our military, they do a cost-benefit analysis before they join. And the cost of joining a branch of our military could be very high. That's why we have national cemeteries all across our country even in a stable environment. You don't know what a year might hold for a nation. The cost is high, but there, of course, are benefits that those who join determine this outweighs the cost of what it, what, what it could be to me. We remember those whose service cost them their lives. We know uh, that many were answering the call to service in the middle of a wars, different wars that our nation has fought, when the cost was the highest, but something told them that the reward that they would receive or maybe that even others would receive was greater. We're experiencing that, some of that reward as meeting what we're doing right now, which we've, we've mentioned and prayed about. But as noble as that call is, the call to, hey, join our country, join our nation in in fighting for freedom. The call of Jesus is is far greater. So in Matthew chapter 9, 
At the end of Matthew 9, Jesus tells his disciples to pray for laborers to go into the spiritual harvest. Then he calls his disciples at the beginning of chapter 10, and he he empowers them, he instructs them, he sends them out as laborers into the harvest. And three, four Sundays ago, whatever, the first sermon uh, we, we talked about, They were to pray for laborers, and then Jesus is basically saying, you are the answer to your prayer. You are the laborers going out into the harvest. He commissions them with a message to proclaim the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then he warns them that they're going to be enemies along the way. They're going to be like sheep going out into the midst of wolves, which is going to bring an initial potential reaction of fear. And so last week we looked at How Jesus encourages them, pointing them to some key gospel truths that are going to build their confidence. And now he's concluding his instruction really by, by clarifying the cost and the rewards of being his disciple. And in the end, the rewards far outweigh whatever it may cost them here on this earth. Following Jesus comes at a cost. We're not talking about a financial cost. It's not like we can, we, we can buy uh, our, our, our salvation, being a disciple, being a believer, but it's cost in the sense that in order to follow Jesus, you must surrender all. Everything. No area of your life is, is left to, hey, this, is, this is my area. Jesus can have those areas. Jesus says, no, you're going to surrender all to me. And the proposal that Jesus paints for his disciples is an all or nothing proposal. You either get all of me or you get none of me. No true disciple is straddling the fence. No true believer is serving two masters, just like the one who would join the military. They're not at the same time running a business back home. You're you're either all in or you're not. So following Jesus, what we're going to look at this morning, comes at a cost, but the reward is worth it. What are the costs? What are the rewards? Four truths here this morning that I think are going to help us think through this passage and consider both the cost and the rewards, or four truths that will help us think through what a disciple of Jesus can expect to face as they follow after him. Number one, denial is tempting. Verses 32 and 33, Jesus continuing from what he just talked about, uh, not fearing because they are of more value than the sparrows. He then says, so everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But everyone Sorry, but whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. So denial of Jesus is going to be tempting to those that that, that he's sending out. For the twelve, Jesus, as we mentioned, has has already expelled out, look, you're you're going to have enemies that are against you. Fear is going to creep into your mind. You're You're going to be standing there before the crowds, before the rulers. And the first thing that's going to cross your mind is, Jesus who? I don't know him. That's what you're going to want to to, to say in order to appear appear right before men, in order to save your own neck. Jesus will get thrown onto the bus. 
But notice what he says at the end of verse 3, there is a consequence to denying Jesus. He says, whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. So the first phrase, we're talking about the present, the here and now. You deny me before men in your life here on this earth, where the second phrase is looking to the, to the future. So your denial of Jesus today has a future impact. And what is he pointing back to? Pointing back to verse 15 again, the day of judgment. Can't seem to get away from from that verse that Jesus introduces early on. You deny him, he will deny you. Denial leads to destruction. Denial leads to separation from God. Notice in this phrase here, he, he talks about, I will deny before my Father. And that's, that's different than what he says in verse 29 when he talks to the disciples, I think in a, an encouraging way to build their confidence in relationship. Your Father, he says in verse 29. Here he says, my Father. Maybe there's a couple reasons for this. One, for those who deny Jesus, God is not their spiritual Father. They are not a child of God. But I think even more importantly, what Jesus is doing is that this is a claim to to deity. Jesus is claiming to be God. He is uniquely the Son of God. With all the attributes and all the characteristics that the Father had, Jesus is saying, yeah, we are one and the same. He is begotten of God, cut from the same cloth. And to deny Jesus, he says, I will deny you. Now, I flipped the order that we looked at these verses, but I want to look back at verse 32 because the other side of the coin, you deny me, I will deny you, but he first says, if you acknowledge me before men, and here we have that present here and now contrasted with the future, I will acknowledge you on the day of judgment. There's a positive side to this coin. If you acknowledge me, I will acknowledge you. Now, the word acknowledge is the word confess. Okay, so verbal confession of Jesus is what is in view. Confess me. I want to stop and think about that word me. The confession of a disciple is to confess who Jesus claims to be and all that he claims to be. Our culture loves to redefine words. I mean, it's hard sometimes to even have a conversation about certain topics anymore because the definitions have all been redefined. How do we get any clarity to to, to this? But the same thing has happened with the name Jesus over the years. I mean, you could ask a hundred different people if they believe in Jesus, and they, they might say yes. But then you ask them, well, who is Jesus? And you might get a hundred different definitions of what they think, who they think Jesus is. Entire religions have twisted Jesus, molded him, pressed him into, into someone that they can fit into their belief system. However, a person doesn't get to redefine who Jesus is. We don't get to pick out the parts that we like. Leave the other parts. Jesus is God in flesh. Jesus is creator. Jesus is Lord of all. Jesus is the judge. Jesus is life. Jesus is the only truth. He is the only way. He is the lamb slain before the foundation of the world for our sin. This is who he is. 
This is who he claims to be. So when he says, acknowledge me, he's saying, acknowledge me in all that I've revealed about myself. Don't downplay my authority here. Don't downplay my teaching over there. But acknowledge me in full, unashamedly. And friend, this morning, we must confess him. We might think, well, you know, I, I wouldn't deny Jesus, but I don't, I don't really say a whole lot. I mean, I don't, want, I don't want to push my beliefs on other people. But what does Jesus say? If you acknowledge, confess me before men. The idea is you're going to say something. You can't not say something. Romans 10, 9 and 10, Paul, Paul's words help us out here. He says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. What do you have here? You have both a, a if you want to say, a private belief, but what is that private belief going to do? It's going to come out of your mouth. It has to come out of your mouth. Confession of Jesus is necessary, even when denial is tempting. Now, I want to take a, a moment and just think about, well, what exactly does it mean to deny Jesus? Those of you that know your Bible well might even be thinking, well, Peter denied Jesus three times, going to, to the cross, and yet he writes a couple New Testament books, He's a leader in the early church, so, I mean, either Jesus has it wrong or Peter's outcome in life is, is not what we think. So let's think about this. As we take the scriptures as a whole, obviously Jesus isn't talking about uh, just a situation where someone who is a Christian is in a difficult spot and, and, and out of fear one time denies Jesus. That's a serious thing, but what does Peter do after his denial? He recognizes what he did. He recognizes it as sin, and he repents. And what is the testament of the rest of his life? He is one who is, is confessing Jesus boldly before others. Was, was he defined by that one time that Jesus prophesied in his own life? And he said, no, I'll never deny you. He wasn't defined by that, but he sought forgiveness. Forgiveness is available even for those times when the moment overcomes us. So, so what is Jesus saying? Here's what I think he's saying. Denial of, of me as a normal pattern in your life will lead to a denial of by me before the Father. If, if, you're, never, if you're never confessing Christ, if you're always denying him, if, if this is just the way that you live, and I'm going to deny you before the Father. We could flip it around and, and think about verse 32. Failure to acknowledge Jesus before men is, is in itself a denial of Jesus and will lead to denial by Jesus before the Father. One 17th century pastor theologian, John Gill, I think it explains helpfully denial like this. Here's how he explains it. He says, to deny Christ is to drop or oppose any of those truths which regard his person, office, and grace, or to hide and conceal them from men through fear, shame, or cowardice of mind, and even not to confess him through fear of men is interpreted by Christ 
a denial of him. So several things going on to, to just to, to oppose outwardly the truths of Christ, to hide or conceal them from men, or even not to confess him is a denial of him. So denying Jesus is not just a, a one-time situation. It's also not just being in a situation like Peter where, where someone is asking you, do you know Jesus? And you say, no, I don't know him. We, we might never have that particular situation come up in our life, in the culture that we live in. But maybe denying Jesus looks like us remaining silent and never sharing the gospel with anybody around us. We just, we just don't say anything. We're just silent about it. Maybe we deny Jesus by pursuing every pleasure that we want without any thought of him as our Lord. Maybe we deny Jesus when we work tirelessly to keep all the rules to make ourselves right before God without ever thinking, Jesus has already paid the price in full. My works do nothing. Denying Jesus is speaking or living in such a way that his authority is diminished, that his work is diminished. And denial is tempting. It might cost you your reputation. It might cost you your, your job, your status, and, or much more. It's going to be tempting to deny your Lord, but the reward that is promised is that you will be acknowledged by the Father. Like, one day, you will stand before the judge and God the Father sitting there and Jesus at the right hand. And as you approach, Jesus will lean over to his Father and say, I, I know her. I know him. They've acknowledged me. And the Father will say, I know her as well. Come, enter into my presence. Denial is tempting, but acknowledgement by the Father is, is far better. Number two, division is probable. Verses 34 to 36. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Now, two weeks ago, we spent quite a bit of time talking about enemies that are going to come from your own family. So if you want to listen more uh, back from verses 16 and following, uh, you can do that online. But, so we're not going to take as much time here today, but a couple things. Verse, verse 34, Jesus tells his disciples, I haven't come to bring peace, but I've come to bring a sword. When, when would you use a sword? You use it in battle. You use it when the enemies are around. So Jesus is saying, my, my coming has actually brought division, not peace. Not yet. Okay, that the, ultimately, it's going to bring peace. But right now, it's dividing. It's going to divide. And the example that he gives in verse 35, father against son, mother against daughter, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law. Maybe you're thinking, I got all kinds of issues with my in-laws, so that's not really like that crazy. But in those days, families are living in big units. They're part of the same family structure, oftentimes the same house working to get along, and now they're dividing. 
It's not over money, and it's not over discipline methods. It's not over politics or education, but it's over Jesus. You're dividing over me. Just like he says then back in in, in verse 21, he reiterates in verse 36, there will be enemies, those who are against you in your own house. So Jesus is so polarizing, it brings families to blows. Following Jesus comes at a cost, and here Jesus says the cost is your, your family might disown you. They might start viewing you as the enemy. You may lose that family inheritance. You're going to be cut off from the holiday celebrations. And for what? Nothing more than following me. What am I doing that's so bad? You're you're following me. But Jesus says that's the cost. Now I've often heard people say things like, "You, you can hurt me, you can do me wrong, but if you mess with my family, we're going to have problems. Maybe some of you think like that. Why do we think like that? Because we value our family. Our family's precious to us. So any kids in here have brothers or sisters that, that pick on them? Okay. Every kid should be raising their hand. Your sibling might pick on you every day, but you know what? At the end of the day, kids that raise their hand, they, they love you. Why? Because you're family. Family has a unique way of overlooking a lot of those offenses and, and making up. We don't like people messing with our family. So, so when you're confronted with this, this truth, Jesus or family, you feel the struggle in your heart. Who am I going to choose? Maybe you're here this morning and you've had to choose between family and Jesus. More and more culturally, it looks like I've I got to choose Jesus and his teaching or I'm going to choose my family and their lifestyle. It's a hard choice. The cost that you're calculating when you make that choice And it's going to set you at odds with them. Jesus says, don't be surprised by this. This is normal for my disciple. Division is probable. Number three. Got to keep moving. Devotion is essential. Verses 37 to 39. He then says, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Devotion is essential. Two, two ways we're going to look at this, this point. One, verse 37, Jesus over family. He starts out, he says, look, whoever, and he uses this word nine times, whoever. He broadens his audience from the beginning, he's talking to the 12, and it, it just kind of broadens till by the end. Now it's like we can apply this to ourselves because whoever would follow me, anyone that's listening, and then he includes all people, father, mother, son, daughter, there's... There, that applies to you somehow. You're either a father, a mother, a son, or daughter. And then he contrasts love of family for love 
for him. A disciple's love for family cannot be more than their love for Jesus. I don't know how that settles on your ears, but your love for your family cannot be more than your love for Jesus. Jesus must sit atop the love order in your heart. He's at the top and everything else filters down through that or from that. And Jesus knows exactly what he's asking. He's asking his disciples to go all in, in devotion to him. This verse isn't saying that we need to abandon our family, that we need to like, cut off ties from our family, but we must be willing to follow Jesus and do what he calls us to, even if it looks like we're being unloving to our families. Remember the context. Jesus is calling out laborers to go into the harvest. Maybe he's calling you to go somewhere into the harvest and and your family doesn't like that so much. I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm going to follow my family. Two chapters before this in Matthew chapter 8, verse 21, a man tells Jesus that that he wants to follow him, but he says, Lord, let me first go and, and bury my father before I follow you. And Jesus' response, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Now, Jesus isn't being cold and insensitive. This, what was happening, this man's father hadn't died yet, but he wanted to wait until his father died and then he would follow Jesus. And Jesus challenges him, do you, do you love me more than your family? But his love for his father was greater than his love for Jesus. If love for family is greater than love for Jesus, what does Jesus say? We are not worthy of him. It's the same word he uses in verses 11 and 12 when he talks about these worthy and unworthy houses as he sends his disciples out. In Luke's parallel passage account of this this teaching, Luke chapter 14 Instead of saying, you are not worthy of me, Luke says, you cannot be my disciple. That's what he means. Like if this is the case, if your love for family is greater than your love for me, you you can't be my disciple. I must sit at the top because I am worthy of the first love of your heart. We can't have it both ways. Your love shows your devotion And devotion to family over Jesus means you are not worthy to bear the name of disciple of Christ. You are not worthy to be associated with me, Jesus would say. You are not worthy of my reward. So Jesus over family. But verses 38 and 39, we're going to look at Jesus over self. Maybe family isn't your hang-up. But there's but there's a greater love for self than there is for Jesus. If that's the case, Jesus echoes the same words, you are not worthy of me. And what does Jesus do in in verse 38? He calls his disciples to take up their cross and to follow him. The idea of taking up your cross, it's not talking about going through some hard circumstance. I hear people say say things like that a lot, like, well, this this disease or disability or this, this... Uh, marriage struggle, that's just like the cross I have to bear. 
That's not what's in view here. When we hear Jesus say the word cross, our minds immediately go to the cross that he carried. The cross cannot be separated from Jesus. And where was Jesus going with his cross? He was going to his death. So following Jesus comes with a cost. And here he says the cost is death to self. Die to self. Now as we are born and we start to grow up, we're told for much of our lives by our culture, sometimes the way that we're raised, we're told to live our life, to pursue our dreams, to pursue our goals, to to pursue our desires. That's what your life looks like. But Jesus says, you know, I want you to pick up your cross I want you to carry it up the hill and I want you to take all of your ambitions and your desires and your goals and your dreams and I want you to slay them. I want you to kill them. You no longer live life for you, but you live life for me. In commenting on the cost of discipleship, John Piper says this, counting the cost of discipleship means realizing that authentic discipleship, true, true discipleship, may exact from you the highest price relationally and the highest price physically. There's a cost to following Jesus, but yet we are stubborn people and we, we sometimes we can think, look, I hear all that, but I'm going to press ahead in life and do exactly what I want, all the things that I've been planning and dreaming about. But notice verse 39, and this is the warning to each and every one one of us, whoever, all, everybody that would think like this, and find their life. Like, you've, you've done it. You've reached the heights of success. You've climbed the corporate ladder. You've pursued and conquered all of your dreams. Congratulations, but what is the outcome you will lose it. It's the same word in verse 28 where it talks about fear the one who can destroy your body and soul. That word destroy is the word lose. Living for self ends in destruction. And you can ask if you had the opportunity, and maybe you do, maybe you know people uh, around, even in this county, who, who have, quote, found their life in this world. They've, they've conquered all the things that they've want to. But if they're honest and they testify before you, they will tell you that life was not what they thought it would be. Because that's not true living. The end of their, at the end of this earthly life, none of those things matter. But then Jesus says, here is true living. The end of verse 39, whoever loses his life takes up his cross for my sake will find it. A life lived for the sake of Jesus has found true life. Matthew chapter 8, the man in Matthew 8 that I brought up he thought life was in his family. And he says, let me first bury my, my father. Let me do that. Another disciple in that same passage had a love for earthly comforts that were too much. And Jesus says, you can't be my disciple. And we might be asking, well, how do I know if that's us? How do I know if I'm that guy? 
I think we can start by asking if we're a let me first type of Christian. Can I put it in quote? Let, let me first, okay? Just like that man said, let me first bury my father. Maybe we think, let me first graduate college. Let me first start my career. Let me first pay off the house. Let me first build my retirement. Let me first, you, you fill in your blank. What is keeping you from following him? I mean, can you imagine if Jesus told his father before he goes to the, like, like, before I go to the cross, let me first. What does he say to his father, though? Not my will, but yours be done. For a true disciple, everything is now viewed in relation to Jesus. He's the greatest treasure, he is the reward. And so he receives our greatest love. Devotion to Jesus is essential, and it comes at a cost, but life with Jesus is a far greater reward. Number four, fourth and final point, verses 40 to 42, demonstration is practical. He says in verse 40, whoever receives receives you, Talking to the twelve, receives me. And whoever receives me, receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet, because he is a prophet, will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person, because he is a righteous person, will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water, because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Following Jesus will be lived out in practical ways. It's going to be confessing Christ before others, but it's going to be on display in how we interact with even other disciples. Specifically, he says, you receive or you welcome other disciples and you care for them as as you have opportunity. So to the 12, remember this is his his primary audience here as he's he's giving this teaching— he first, he starts off, he says, the one who is truly a disciple will receive you. We echo back to the, the worthy and unworthy houses in verses 11 to 15. But notice what he says next. Whoever receives you is not just receiving you, but is actually receiving me. Jesus is closely tied to his disciples. They are united as one. So to receive the disciple is to receive Christ himself. But he continues, whoever receives me, receives him who sent me, my Father. So Jesus and God the Father are united, and disciples of of Christ are connected to the Father, and whoever is connected to the Father, has one Father, is connected to all of those who would also call him Father. And so this is then demonstrated practically in how we receive and love other disciples. Notice, notice here in these verses, and, and we're just kind of really flying through these verses rather than, than, than hunkering down, but notice how Jesus starts with how someone receives one of the 12 in verse 40, someone receives you, and then he broadens that in verse 41 to a prophet. 
um, Jewish audience Matthew is writing to, they would have understood that who a prophet was, that they were a spokesman for the Lord. And then he says, not just a prophet, but, but anyone who is righteous, any righteous person, until he gets to verse 42, and then he says, whoever gives one of these little ones, because he is a disciple. So we got the 12, a prophet, righteous person, any of these little ones who would call themselves a disciple. Now, there's, there's various views on these verses, but, but ultimately the teaching goes beyond the 12 to all of the little ones who would call themselves a disciple. Anyone or whoever would call themselves a disciple. To receive them is to receive Christ. So to receive a prophet, because he is a prophet of the Lord, is to receive Christ. To receive a righteous person, because he is righteous in the Lord, is to receive Christ. To give a cold, refreshing drink to a, one of these little ones, because he is a disciple, is to give a cold, refreshing drink to Christ himself. Matthew 25, Jesus explains, I think this a little, even helps us a little, even more clearly. So I want to turn there because I want to read a few verses. Matthew 25, just a few chapters over, page 831. In this passage, Jesus explains the final judgment. And he says that the, the sheep and the goats are going to be separated. The, the believers, the sheep, and the goats, the, the non-believers. And here's what he says to those on his right that are the sheep on his right hand. In verse 34, Matthew 25, verse 34, it says, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom. Yeah, remember, that's the message that the disciples are proclaiming. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you? Or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. What is Jesus saying? If you do it, for any of my disciples, you're doing it for me. Love for Jesus is then demonstrated practically in our love for our spiritual brothers and sisters. And really, this is another way that we can, we can acknowledge Jesus. And what's the end of all this? The reward. The end of the, the passage of chapter, Matthew chapter 10, he will by no means lose his reward. So by welcoming a prophet, by welcoming a righteous person, or anyone who is living as a disciple, you place your, yourself in the same threatened position that they may be in. You become partakers of their ministry. So like as the disciples are going out, and he says, the enemies are around you. Those that would take those disciples in, guess what? There could be a target on their back now. You're entering into their ministry. You're partaking in that ministry. And that's why he says then their reward 
is your reward. And the reward is ultimately to be acknowledged by the Father, to be found worthy of Jesus, to have eternal life. And the promise at the end of this passage, your reward is secure. It is kept safe. And it's important to understand that your reward is is not because of these things that you have done. It's it's easy to read this and see the conditions of and in the rewards that are attached. So if I acknowledge Jesus, he will acknowledge me. If I take up my cross, then I am worthy. If I lose my life, I'll find it. If I receive a disciple, I'll I'll get a reward. These conditions though all point back to a heart of faith. They're not just works that we're doing. From faith comes works. Jesus, well, Jesus says in his word, uh, but not, not in his recorded words, without faith it is impossible to please God. The fruit of our faith is meeting these conditions. Like it's not like buckle down and do these things so you get this reward. It's if your heart is one that's full of faith in Christ, you're going to acknowledge him. You're going to die to yourself. You're going to welcome in those who are mine. So the fruit of our faith is meeting these conditions. That's the only way the conditions can be met. So the reward comes by faith, not by works. And it's secure because Jesus has secured it. It's through him that we find acceptance by the Father. It's through him that we're regarded as worthy. Through him we are given life. And through him, our reward can never be lost. As we wrap up here, let's summarize this passage. Briefly, Jesus calls and commissions his disciple, and it comes at the perfect time. In the very next chapter, chapter 11, John the Baptist is going to be found to be in prison for preaching the gospel of the kingdom. In chapter 14, he is beheaded for following Jesus. It's not going to be too long before Jesus is put on trial, sentenced to death by crucifixion. And the question will loom large, who's going to carry this message of the kingdom forward? Well, Jesus has has already called and commissioned and instructed his disciples in exactly what they were to do. But the message of the kingdom still needs to go out today. And these 12 aren't here anymore. But you and I are here. We're here to answer the call. The call that Jesus says, I want you to count the cost. I'm not not trying to sleight of hand anything. I'm telling you the cost up front. But the reward is far greater. Gaining Jesus is worth it all. Brother and sister, every day we do a cost-benefit analysis in our life. Not just on trivial things like when we go to the store, but in following Christ. And every day the cost is there, but every day the reward is greater. I want to end with the words of Paul from Philippians chapter 3 and verse number 8. Here's Paul. Here's what he came to know in thinking through all of what it means to follow Christ. He says, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order 
that I may gain Christ.